And now for something completely different. A radio show about books. Didn't think it through at all. Inconceivable! <laughs> yes, the show's serious. That's totally a thing. Thank you. Tarzan of the Apes. Brought to you from out the pages of Edgar Rice Burroughs' immortal book. Oh, wow. In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and been widely regarded as a bad move. And now for your host, Daniel Thompson, a completely underqualified buffoon who has no idea why he's here in the first place. And all were amazed and said, this guy is really good. Do you do children's parties? <laughs> Hello, my peoples, and welcome to the Very Serious Writing Show. It is 72 degrees in Spokane, Washington, mostly sunny. Caught you guys listening today. We have in Joshua Johnson, author of The Edge of Oblivion, a new enclave book coming to bookstores very shortly. And we are talking about world building, primarily. That's what we are talking about today. How to build worlds, and specifically how to build sci-fi alien species. Because that's just not talked about enough. Of the many issues facing Americans today, how to make more aliens is just, it's just not on enough people's lips. The idea is not circulated enough. So today, we're building some aliens, and we're going to talk about alien world development. We're going to talk about the way Star Wars and Star Trek deal with it. We're going to talk about sociology. We're going to talk about biology and the economics and the politics that go into like the aliens' worlds, and we're especially going to be talking about Orson Scott Card and his techniques for developing alien species, because let's face it, he's pretty much the best at it. He is amazing. So strap in, buckle up, it's about writing today. Who would have thunk? The Very Serious Writing Show, Joshua Johnston. You're here because we want the best, and you're it. Nope, couldn't keep a straight face. I was reading on your About Me page on your website that you uh, you teach. Yeah. Do you teach at the uh, like at the high school level or the college level? I teach at the high school level. I'm a high school government and history teacher. Hey, that's pretty cool. How long have you been doing that? This is I've been doing that for about 16 years now. Oh wow! So this is this is your career. This is my career. Yes, I uh, the writing has. I mean, I've been dabbling in writing off and on, but I got the motivation to try and really do something with it in the last couple of years. Uh, but my primary employment is a teacher. Um, this is something I decided to do just for the living fun of it, and this is where it's taken me. I think writing's always better when it's done for the fun of it. When it's just like you you have to get the story out just because it's <coughs> what the story is. There's just the stories in you. Right. Uh, your, your current book, the book that's, it hasn't come out yet. I was on Amazon this morning. It's not quite out yet. It's Edge of Oblivion. Is this your that's first, right. is this your first published novel? This is my first published novel. Wow, man. You're, you're on the front lines. This is, this is the beginning. How does that make yes, you it feel? Is. <laughs> How does that make you feel? Well, it's, it's, of course it's surreal. It's exciting. Um, for me, what is good being a little bit older is that for me, I mean, I'm, it's exciting, 
but I think there's also this sense of, you know, there's a wide-eyed wonder about it, but also tempered by some life experience, too. So I'm just kind of enjoying it as it happens, you know, and kind of pouring myself into it. Yeah, for sure. And uh, as we, right before we were start, starting the interview, you, uh, you said that you were working on book three. Is this a trilogy? This is a planned trilogy, yes. I have a three-book contract with Enclave. Nice. And those Enclave people are great. Those are, those are fun people. Yeah, they've been a good group of people to get to know, um, just from a lot of different walks of life. Nice people, very smart, um, love their craft. There's a lot, a lot of good going on there. So tell me about the Edge of Oblivion. I mean, what is what is the Edge of Oblivion? Edge of Oblivion is an epic space adventure. I mean, that's really what it's about. It's uh, it's set in the far future, after Earth has emerged from this massive global cataclysm, what, what they call the Dark Ages. And, you know, in their future, in our future, they're living in a world where most of human history has, is gone. It's been lost. So the characters in the book, they don't know a lot about our world. Um, so they're living in this sort of post, post-apocalyptic world, if you will. So they've rebuilt and they they have gone into some technology and then they stumble upon the remains of an alien starship that's crashed on earth and it launches them into a technological revolution uh, they gain space travel and when they get into space they start meeting other spacefaring races they meet other aliens okay uh, they meet extraterrestrials and um Eventually, they coalesce into this sort of loose alliance known as the Confederacy. The Confederacy is this, uh, it's, I guess, it's sort of a United Nations-like uh, alliance of worlds, maybe a little bit stronger than that. And, uh, and then, then this, this force arrives, uh, this unstoppable, mysterious force comes from outside explored space. And that's where the book really starts. That's kind of where it picks up. I'm, I'm picking up on some Star Trek vibes. Are you a Star Trek fan? I am. Uh, I, when I, I recently did an interview with uh, Morgan Bussey uh, oh, yeah. on Clave, and she she oh, she asked. Great. She said, "Star Wars or Star Trek?" And I said, "That's a really dangerous question to ask me <laughs> because I love both of them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I can go on forever about both of them and how they both uh, they they're different, but they complement each other. Uh, they both bring a lot to the table. So." Uh, yeah, I do like Trek. Uh, I like the, the Trek, of course, all about those ideas of boldly going. Um, and I like Star Wars, too, with the characters and the mythology that's built there. So there's probably a little bit of Star Trek. There's a little bit of Star Wars that sort of influences me, uh, you know, in trying to, to world build this this uh, this galaxy where you have these different spacefaring races. And it's really hard because uh, Star Wars and Star Trek have dominated sci-fi society for ever since ever since uh, both of them came out, really. So it's really hard for those yeah. of us who've who either saw them when they came out or have grown up with them in their childhood to really separate the ideas of sci-fi from them. What is, what about Edge of Tomorrow? Do you think do you do you separate what what kind of new things did you bring to the table? With, with my novel, with Edge of Oblivion, one of the things that I really sat to do, and I and I, I was aware of the fact that there is, uh, there is going to be people who grew up on Star Wars and Star Trek, and so you know, just like with Lord of the Rings, it creates this huge fantasy world, and it's like, how do you tread into fantasy? Yeah, when no Tolkien kidding. wrote all these pages about it, and I think the first thing you do is you have to, you know, you have to, you have to to take into account the fact that it can be done, that other people have done it. 
you know, and I, I've grown up not just around Star Wars and Star Trek, but Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein and Orson Scott Card. Oh, Card. Um, and, and, <laughs> and, 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 and so, you know, all those different writers who they were able to develop sci-fi that sort of stood on its own. Or, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to get into TV, you've got Battlestar Galactica or you have Firefly and Serenity where they were able to find a way to carve out a new niche. So so my thought was, you know, I'm not going to decide I wasn't going to worry too much about that, but I was going to try and create characters that were unique and races that were unique. So I, in creating the races that I did, I, I obviously tried to make sure that they were distinctive. And I had some ideas uh, that are di- they're different. They are meant to be mm-hmm. different races than what you see in Star Wars or Star Trek. Their sociologies are different. Um, you know, you've got, uh, for example, uh, one of the races is a race that is very peaceable um, as long as you don't attack them. And if they attack you, if you attack them, uh, sociologically, they basically try to wipe you out entirely. Okay. Um, so, you know, so, you know, whereas you've got a lot of times in science fiction, you have these races that are just outwardly aggressive. Your Klingons, yeah. for example, that are just by nature aggressive. But here we have a race that if you're peaceable with them, they're very peaceable. Um, but if you're not, they basically will just tenaciously fight you t- until you're gone. And and so that's one of the major races of the Confederacy. And and that that sociology actually in the decades before my book picks up actually got embroiled in a war with one of the other races where that race was almost extinguished until humanity kind of came in diplomatically and saved them. Um, okay. So there's those elements that, that I try to do to, to put some wrinkles on these races that make them different. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, the races, you have you have two different types of races. You have the Star Wars races that you kind of get just barely any surface material on, and then you have Orson Scott card races where you are going right. to learn everything about them. It's going to be right. integral to the entire story. I love card. I actually just picked up Ender's Shadow yesterday. And I started okay. reading it. Already can't put it down. Love, yeah. love Card's work. No, I mean, you know, with with Card, I think you're absolutely right. And what he does, of course, he he waits a little while with the Ender series to kind of delve into the aliens. But when he does, he does it in a very deep way. You know, he mm-hmm. he world very carefully with them. And you could argue with his races. I mean, they're just there's. I don't know if there's any counterpart to the races that he introduces in the Ender Cycle that corresponds to anything in Star Wars or Star Trek. They're just no, completely it's, straight. Um, it's, it's amazing and, what he does. Yeah. Yes. And it's very visceral and real. Like you, Even though they're very foreign, he makes you feel like you understand them. And So I think, yeah, and those are just, my goodness, those are the challenges when you world build aliens. And, and some authors, some science fiction authors, are, we're just too afraid to do it. You know, I know some science fiction authors that really struggled to do it. I And then those that did, I know Isaac Asimov, he wrote a book. Um, uh, oh, goodness, I'm drawing a blank now. It's uh, The Gods Themselves. He wrote the book The Gods Themselves where... It's the, one of the very few books where Asimov attempted to write about aliens, and he said it was the hardest book he ever wrote. Hmm. Um, just because, he, you know, to try and create something that just wasn't human. And that's a challenge. And I, you know, as a, as a writer, I just, you know, you just have to kind of say, I'm just going to, I'm going to create this thing. I'm going to let it stand on its own. And I'm not, you know, and, and go from there and not try to agonize too much over it. I mean, and, and then you let your beta readers flesh it out and tell you, is this going in the right direction? Is this working? 
you let your editor do those things, and then you make changes as if you feel like people are telling you to do that. Yeah, both beta readers and editors are a huge part of the process. So when you were developing your your different races, did you did you lean more towards card or did you kind of just did you did you kind of look for less details and just make them a part of the world itself without kind of having the world revolve around the races? What did you do in the terms of that world building? You know, well, and I've got I've got more races than he does. So by necessity, yeah. you, unless you write a book, it's a thousand pages long. I mean, <laughs> unless you go Frank Herbert school, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you're just you're going to have a little bit less. So I'm not, you know, with with me, my races are not necessarily explored as much detail, although I actually do have an my book has an appendix in it where I actually do take some of the extraneous material that I use in developing the storyline and actually do go into it a little bit more. Okay. So when they actually get to the end of my book, they actually can read an appendix where it will talk a bit more about the sociology and culture and history of the major races that are talked about in the book. Does it feel um, good? Does it feel good to take some of that extra world building material and stuff that you've come up with and put it in an appendix when it doesn't fit in the book? Like I know, yes, of- yeah, that that was very satisfying. <laughs> I know a lot of people. It's like I've come up with all these cool ideas, but none of them fit the story. But I, like they're they're there in the race, but I don't have time to explain to them. So that it seems like it'd be a good happy medium to kind of let it is. Well, and I I was just reading the other day. I think you're aware uh, Stephen King. There's a series uh, based on his book from 1963, sci-fi time travel. Um, uh, was it? It's uh, based on the the shooting of John F. Kennedy. He does a Stephen King wrote this story about where um, where this man goes back in time to try and stop Kennedy from being shot. And to do this story, King did all this research on the 1950s and 60s. Well, yeah, he couldn't help himself. He's got to put all that in the book. So the book comes <laughs> out to about 900 pages long. Oh, you know, boy. it's just this this tome and. You know, and some some people say, "Oh, it's great," and some people say it's over long. And I mean, who am I, he's Stephen King? So you know, <laughs> I mean, he's New York Times bestseller author. But but I could see, you know, when you research how tempting it is, you, you go to all this trouble, and you want that stuff to matter for something. And you know, so I was able to do some of that with my appendix. Other things don't make it necessarily make it in, but I may find ways later on on my blog or in other avenues to kind of find ways to weasel that in or to to write. I'm uh, in other ways. I'm actually uh, I'm I'm going to write some short stories that run parallel uh, to the 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 trilogy, the book trilogy. Actually, I wrote the first story and it came out. Uh, it's through my mailing list. It came out back uh, at the beginning of the year, but I'm going to write a couple of other stories. And so I, it gives me some opportunities to kind of weasel in some of that other material into some other spaces. Yeah, I saw you had one short story up. That was It was, uh, it was linked to uh, subscribing to your newsletter. And that's right. And that's a really good way to get people to sign on to newsletters, I found, is to, uh, to give, give them content in exchange for subscription. That tends to be... It tends to be a really, a really, a really good balance. Like it's like you are, you are giving them something, which is nice. And, and sure absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I wanted people to have a chance to kind of see what this this universe I'm carving out is about. And uh, also, honestly, it's just kind of fun to write those stories too. I thought, you know, just to create to to create some parallel storylines that run along that's set in the same universe where it intersects with the events. And the people of the actual book trilogy, you know, where hopefully the end results, you know, hopefully create this living, breathing world that people can sort of resonate with. Absolutely. 
Now, hey, some of the terms you've been using to describe your world, you had uh, the UN in space and you've, you mentioned sociology. Does a lot of your world building in terms of those things come back to your teaching of American government and politics? Does that come back to your teaching background or? Yes, absolutely. No question. Uh, guilty as charged. <laughs> I, I would say for me, uh, for me, a sense of history and government and it, those things are definitely things that you'll see surface through the course of the trilogy. I, you know, how these races fit together, how they interact, and and some of the different politics and history and sociology of these different planets and these different races. It, it kind of comes through. Those are things that uh, I. And there's no question that it draws from uh, my my background. My actually degree is in history with an emphasis in American history, which is. You know, so I'm not, I'm not, you know, and not exactly from the same pedigree um, that some writers are, where they get their degree in English or writing, and they go on and they write that way. So I'm coming from it from a different angle. But, but I'm also, you know, I look at people like John Grisham. You know, you look at Grisham, who, when it has a law degree, is Juris Doctorate, and, mm-hmm. and he parlayed that into his, you know, writing about law. And so I thought, you know, I can do some of that myself. I can draw from my history background to write about science fiction, but also to write about it with this sort of sense of history to it um, in a way that makes it living and breathing. Absolutely. What's some of your favorite like sociological like history things that you've done for your races? Like, What's some of the government stuff that you've done that you're really fond of? Sociologically, I mean, governmentally, you've got a confederal congress and you have a confederal president and there is some question as to how powerful that president really is, you know, even though this person is, you know, very, very, um, uh, very, uh, they're very uh, well known. They're a very popular person, mm. but not necessarily powerful. You've got one of the planets that is basically a meritocracy, um, where essentially it's 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 a it's a race of really brilliant aliens, mm. and their entire leadership structure is basically based on tests um, and assessments, like they are a. So the, the smartest people basically run the planet um, is how they work out. And it, there's uh, people who, for example, are not as intelligent but are very more emotionally tuned. One of the drawbacks to the, this particular race is they're not—they're fairly emotionally aloof. They're just not. There's not. There's not much there diplomatically, for example. Uh, but people who are more skilled diplomatic are seen as stupid, and so they're a little farther down on the sociological chain. They don't tend to to find themselves in leadership positions. And this has a tendency to get this planet in a little bit of trouble because they don't handle diplomacy very well at the top. Um, so you've got that. You've got one of the races that's uh, it's mostly tribal. And uh, this tribal race has essentially representatives from these different these different uh, family tribes that serve on a ruling council. It's a bit of an oligarchy okay. that runs this entire planet. So you've got these. You got one planet that nobody really knows how their power structure works because they're so secretive they won't tell anybody else about it. Okay. Um, like yeah. they're, they're, part, they're part of the Confederacy and they have representation, but uh, but it's basically a state secret how their homeworld is run and they don't talk about it. So you've got some different groups that have different ways that they approach those things. Yeah, you got some real variety going there. Now, would you say like? What what's your, what's the most fun you have? Is it the uh, the world building that you find the most fun about the storytelling? Is it is it the plot? Is it the characters? I would say I really like I would say I like the world building a lot, and I like being able to integrate that into a compelling plot. Um, I work on characters, and characters I would say in the spectrum with you know characters are something that I care about, um, and one of the things I have 
I, especially this is where the beta process has been wonderful and where the editing process has been wonderful is because, because those people have prodded me more to say, well, we'd like to hear you've got these, this background that you've written on some of the backstory of these people, bring those into the fore. And so I've done more of that and you'll, you'll see, you'll learn about these people's families. Um, you'll learn about where they come from. Um, you know, for, for example, one of the, one of the characters in my story his race actually is just completely individualistic they have no working government at all um, they don't care about family they don't do anything it's basically an entire society of just workaholics yeah uh, I guess to put it plainly uh, who, who are completely individualistic but you begin to get a little bit into what 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 does that look like in a in an individual and then one of the other races interacts with this individual trying to kind of understand where they come from like why why they think why their thought process is the way they the way that it is and so i've been able to build in some scenes where you get to kind of get a glimpse into some of these people their families their their mm -hmm. skeletons and things like that um but i won't lie i think some of the, the my real favorite parts to write i, I mean i love creating the, the races and creating the worlds, but it's a lot of fun to put them into a plot where they find themselves in a scene where they've got to escape from, uh, you know, a prison riot, or they have to, um, you know, get in, you know, get into a, um, uh, into a mining colony uh, or a pirate haven where, uh, where they're not welcome. I mean, those kinds of things, those, that, that stuff is really the most fun to write personally. Absolutely. Yeah. It's those, it's those Hollywood scenes almost that are just, wonderful to get in there so much fun yes so much yes. fun to write this november the united states of america will choose its next leader an individual who will need the qualifications to face the rising set of difficulties that plague this great nation but as no candidate even remotely comes close to meeting those qualifications we are here today to nominate a new candidate one who will unite the nation politically economically and intellectually we are here to nominate your next president of the United States, Gary Busey. Gary Busey has shown time and time again that he truly has what it takes to navigate the hard questions of the universe. He is unmatched by any candidate in those qualities which truly matter. His luscious silver hair holds more secrets than Hillary Clinton's email account. His rich wrinkled face can contort in more ways than Ted Cruz's stupid mug. Gary Busey owns a comb. Bernie Sanders does not own a comb. Gary Busey is the only human to appear on The Apprentice who is more incomprehensible than Donald Trump himself. Gary Busey probably agrees with John Kasich about things. He does not know, because nobody knows what John Kasich thinks about anything. Bring about the America of tomorrow by electing the Internet's favorite brain-damaged psycho, Gary Busey. His slogan is election, which stands for eggs licking earth cause timidity initiates olfactory nub-nums. Gary Busey, for an America that exists. Paid for by no one because the world is full of stingy jerks. Well hey, I'm not sure if you've listened to the show a whole lot, but sometimes, sometimes I play games with, with my guests. And I want I want to play a game. I want to build an alien with you. I want to go through okay. I want to go through your process of how you might start working on a species and some of the thoughts you start with, so that so that people listening can get an idea of how they might go about building a race, either in a sci-fi or a fantasy uh, setting. So I think that'd yes. be a lot. I think that'd be a lot of fun. So what what do you kind of start with? Does it start with like a general idea, or what what hits you first? 
I think for me, one of the things I think about is I think about, okay, and this is going to sound self-indulgent, but what sounds kind of fun or different? And I know that sounds whimsical, but you know, one of the, one of the great pieces of advice I remember getting re- not that long ago, somebody talked about how books are not supposed to be realistic. You know, for example, dialogue in novels is not really supposed to be realistic because if it was realistic, it would just be boring. You know, nobody would be, you know, because daytime, you know, regular talk in in, a, in, a, in our normal lives is just not that interesting. That, that's why, you know, a only, lot of times... Only if, I, you, I, only if you talk to boring people, Joshua. Only if you talk to boring people. <laughs> only if you talk to boring... And I, and I do talk to a lot of smart people, and I talk... I, but, uh, but... But you know the, the truth is we all know that the world is not always Gilmore Girls. You That's know, it's true. not always <laughs> it's not always that witty banter. Um, those are the kind. I mean, it is like three hours later when you're sitting at home and you're like, oh, I should have said this. But <laughs> you look, you know, I I was joking with my wife. We recently um, I've I've read the book The Fault in Our Stars, and we recently uh, watched the movie Paper Towns. Both of them related to John Green. Oh and yes. John Green, very smart, very smart man, and. And the thing about Green, I, I joked, I said, you know, basically, The Fault in Our Stars is basically a walk to remember, but set in Gilmore Girls. Like, it's just this, <laughs> this, you know, this sad story, but everybody's just got this, like, you know, just Mensa-level wit about them the entire time. So I, I think that's very applicable to aliens. I, I don't know that, I mean, I, I suppose, I mean, some people, especially if you write hard sci-fi, I get the argument of trying to want to make it as realistic as possible you know and, the, the, and, and that's there's definitely a place for that i think it with alien building because we actually haven't as far as we know haven't encountered extraterrestrials before so we don't know what that's going to look like i think that i think you can afford to be more whimsical there and just do something that's fun um something that's fun something that's different and hopefully something that can um Something that's got ways it can integrate itself into your storyline. If your yeah. if your aliens have specific ticks that can advance your plot, I think that's really golden. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the, you talked about the emotion society and like the people, uh, the the alien group that relies on testing a lot. Do the physical attributes come to you? Do you pay much attention to those? Or are you more on the uh, like the sociology of how their cultures work? I do look at physical attributes and sometimes they're connected to each other. You know, for example, one of my races has the ability to smell the emotions of other races. Oh, um, I like that. It's uh, kind of in the way <laughs> they can and, smell and your I fear. My, yeah, well, that's exactly right. It's it's uh, we think about it. I think this is mostly mostly urban legend. There there was a, when I was a kid, I was always told the dogs could smell whether you were afraid or not. And I think we know now it's more complicated than that. But who cares? Um, it was fun, to, you know. For me, I was I created a race that has the ability to smell the emotions, and the different ones in that race have different abilities. Some of them can only smell really strong emotions. Some of them have the ability to actually smell whether you're lying or not. They can sniff out falsehood, and it's got all kinds of applications to their sociology and to their because it's a physical attribute that kind of makes them who they are. Um, you know, it, it and uh, they're actually, they're, they're tree dwellers who have um, their body, their, their physiology is, they don't have a bone structure in the way we do. It's, um, it's a little bit different, so they're a little more flexible. So in terms of how they move and in terms of how they act and where they live, it creates something different. So definitely the physical attributes, I think, can be really valuable. You, you want to have, and you want to know what they think and how they act. 
but what what they um, how they look can also be really important. Well, and we see that even with humans. I, I mean, a lot of how we are as humans is really it's really shaped by our physiology. You know, there's yeah. a lot of things we wouldn't be doing if we didn't have opposable thumbs. You know, this so, is true. <laughs> so. So I think when you look at physiology within an, a an alien, I think you do want to think about that and say, well, how how might the way in which they look and they move and their 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 anatomy is, how might that shape what they do and how they act? Is there a connection between the two? Okay, so let's let's start building our alien. What are we going to? Let's what, what do we want to do? What type of culture do we want to give these people? You've had your kind of your kind of individualistic. Um, aliens and Card did the communal to like the extreme. Absolutely, which was yeah. so much, so much fun. I love. Yes. <laughs> um, but let's see. What what do we want to do? What what else? What else could we do in terms of like the uh, the culture? What? So how do we do for a culture? Well, we need probably. I think sometimes one way to start with that is to think about what their planet looks like. Okay. So. Um, so let's talk about a, a, an ecology here. I don't know. I mean, throw out, I mean, think of just close, uh, in your mind, just spit out the first kind of planet that comes to mind as far as what it looks like or feels like. Is it hot? Is it cold? What does it look like? You know, in, in all the sci-fi that I've seen, I haven't seen anyone except maybe Cloud City that was based on kind of a gaseous planet and the types of beings okay. who would live on, let's, let's take like a Saturn, Jupiter-like gas planet. Okay. I actually have read a book where somebody attempted that. That's oh, really? an interesting story in and of itself. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be, his pen name is Ian Douglas, and he wrote a series of military sci-fi novels um, called Star Carrier. Um, okay. They're they're just kind of your quintessential hard military sci-fi. Um, but I'll try to avoid stealing any of his ideas when we do this, okay? Well, did he have, so, did he have so, his people living in like facilities that are floating in the planet or did he have them free floating able to survive in the they, they were mostly giant balloons these free floating oh. <laughs> and i mean massive size balloons like i think they to communicate i think the uh the humans had to basically take a shuttle and land on one of these things and essentially do surgery into it to set up some sort of form of communication it was like that oh wow um, it, it was pretty pretty crazy so um so we got a gas giant. You said that's, and you're right. Mm -hmm. That's something you don't see explored very often. So we've got a gas giant, and we have aliens that are going to live in this sort of thing. Um, and, and now the question is: is are they going to live on the surface of this thing, or are they going to live in the upper atmosphere of it? Yeah, and I would think. I mean, you're going to have this. It's, it's the gas is going to become more compacted as you go towards the center. So it'd be it'd be kind of a semi-solid layer almost. I would I would imagine that they right. they're and maybe maybe you could you could form some type of caste system based on what level they live in, or even something so, deeper with their. Uh, go ahead. So you could have you could have if you had especially if you had more than one race on this planet, you could have a hierarchy between the the inner dwellers and the outer dwellers. You yeah, know, where the outer dwellers may be in a lower pressure environment, um, they'd almost have to be able to fly or float. It's mm -hmm. kind of inconceivable. They could do anything else. Then your lower dwellers, um, they're going to be the thing about them is they're 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 going to have to physiologically be able to withstand just an enormous amount of pressure. Yeah, I mean the pressure, which goes well beyond anything that you or I could conceive of. It, it's 
It's a bit analogous, I guess if we're looking for some earth analogs to help us with this, we might think about fish that live at the bottom of the ocean, Absolutely. where the pressure is so great, where you know most, most human-made ships would just be crushed, uh, except for those that are just specifically designed for it. Um, but it would also imply, I mean, when you look at these aliens, you would think if the, the ones on the surface probably would have a bit of a problem because they, if for them to go up into the lower pressure areas might cause them to explode, depending on how their physiology is. Yeah. Yeah, it's very dependent on on how that how that functions for them, whether or not... If it's the same species, it could be that just the ones who are in the higher pressure are, are formed differently, kind of like uh, how salmon, over their lifespan, they're, they're kind of their bone structure changes because they've been going upstream. Um, yes. So that yes. that could that could be an element of it, yeah. So this is this is kind of cool. I'm not sure how would, they wouldn't really be able to build dwellings. So are they nomadic? No. Yeah, possibly. You know, it, it well, it's it's kind of like you you think of uh, like a lot of sea. Well, when you hear these stories, we don't really know how smart dolphins are, mm-hmm. but we know because dolphins are not capable of building anything because they just don't have the anatomy for it. They don't have hands they don't have anything that could be used to actually create now they you could still have a society but how much technology they could build would be limited um and you've also got this question of communication you know like how do you communicate how do you how do you store information how do you keep history um those are things that you know in in my at least at first blush you'd look and say i don't know how they would accomplish that um Mm-hmm. Well, and here's the other thing. Let's say that let's say that I was an explorer and I, I'm a human and I I reach this planet and I want to communicate with the people on this planet. Do can I really communicate directly with the ones on the surface, or would I use the upper atmosphere sentience to be go-betweens, where that would be a conduit for communication with the surface dwellers? I mean, it gets complicated you know, really quick. Yes, and but also has this beautiful opportunity if you're a sci-fi writer. You think of the ways in which you could kind of draw from that, you know, where maybe the surface dwellers are represented by proxy, by these other aliens, or, you know, th- there's all these different ways that you could weave that in. Um, maybe because those aliens have high pressure, maybe that's got some use in some other, maybe they have some abilities that could be used in some ways. I mean, those are all things you could begin to explore as a writer. Absolutely. And, and you could even bring in religion into the way, you know, the, the gas is constantly moving. You have this, you have this flow and these storms that these people are, are moving with. You could almost build a religion around this zen-like experience of never being stable in one place, of always finding peace in the movement. It could really bother them Absolutely. to be on a stable surface. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, that's one of those things that, you know, when you talk about you know, faith and religion, that those you've got, you know, that's all part of that. Again, as you're creating that, that culture, those are really, there's lots of, lots of great opportunities to, to kind of see what you can come up with there. And yes, how, how that relates to the environment in which they live. I mean, no, no pun intended, but the sky is kind of the limit on that. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. It's just so much fun to kind of look into the possibilities and think about them and and Card was so good about getting the minute details. Maybe not so much. He, he does in Ender's Game, but you get deeper into his... Have you read uh, like a Speaker Speaker for the Dead and the books that followed that yes. series? Those were so yes, good. They were trippy. Yes. 
<laughs> he kind of got... Works well, especially when you get into books three and four. When you start getting into Xenocide and Children of the Mind... Oh my um, gosh. It gets, it gets really trippy. And I, you know, I think um, one of the things I've read about Card... Card, Card always made it clear that for him, uh, the rela- human relationships were really the most important thing in his writing. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, the real draw... For, for those of us that read Ender's Game... The part that we always remember is the big reveal at the end. Like, oh my goodness, did that really just happen? I mean, yeah. it's one of the greatest plot twists probably in, in the history of science fiction writing. It's mm-hmm. It's got to rank up there. It's just a bombshell. But he, he always said it, it was about the, the um, it was about, it was about the characters, about the interactions. And there is a scene, I, you probably remember this. I'm sure you do. I, I believe it was in, you've read children, you've read all four of the Ender books, correct? I have, yeah. In that in the, okay. the official quintet, I haven't, or yes. or the quartet. I haven't read the uh, the Ender in Exile book, but otherwise, yeah. Okay, it's a pretty good entrequel, and it's something you read. I I read them in the order that he published them, which is what I somebody recommended I do, and I think that worked yeah. out well. Um, it sounds like what you're essentially what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that uh, there's a scene in um, I think it's Zena, it's either Xenocide or Children of the Mind. But I guess it's Children of the Mind. There's a scene where they using that that technology they um, they essentially warp or wormhole they they travel to the plant this planet yeah where they discover the aliens that are behind uh, what goes on I mean that's a major spoiler if you haven't read the book but but uh, they discover that the planet where the where the this that disease came from yeah you know the, the the planet and it's this I mean this is really this is an amazing scene I mean you're the reader. And you're like, they're there, you know? They're finally going to, you know, who are these people? And then they leave. Yeah. You know, and, <laughs> uh, and you're like, wait, what? I don't, what? Who are they? What's going on? And and somebody actually asked Card about it. And Card said, look, I, I wasn't really interested in fleshing out that race. They were, just a, <laughs> they were just a waypoint to exploring these other human relationships. And you're like, no, <laughs> yeah. no, come back. And, and. But you know that's that that's how he writes, and look, the guy is a Hugo winner, so you can't. I mean, he knows what he's doing, but that's the, that's the direction. Whereas with some of the other races, with with the other races, um, you know that really, you know, when you talk about the Ender series, the, the other two major alien races that he explores, they're really he explores them more deeply because they have this connection back to the relationships with his other characters. Like their sociologies are important because they so connect. With Ender and with the people that Ender comes in contact with. But that particular race, he just determined wasn't as important. Now, maybe he'll on in some book, he'll bring it out. I don't know. Maybe he'll talk about it at some future point. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, he. Yeah. I, you, you said he uh, two two races. I really think he did four. Honestly, I mean, you got you got the buggers and the pequeninos, but the Descalada is a race all to its own. I mean, to, to develop a bacterial race, like so deeply, yeah. is like what? And yeah. then uh, I I can't I can't spoil the fourth one, but um, but uh, the uh, his 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 friend who ends up, uh, yeah. Is the the race of one person? You're talking about the big bombshell in that one. Yeah. Um, oh, I love that. Yes. And I, yeah, and you know, now that, and that's all. There's such a metaphysical thing you get into with <laughs> what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's funny with the Descalada. I, you know, it's, you know, I, I guess they are there. It's, it's more of um, it's, it's obviously integral, and there's a connection there. But it's, it's, you know, he explores it and trying to remember there. 
you know, it, it is all bio. It is all biological. I mean, there's no culture to yes. the to that. Right. So, yeah, he does. So they no. don't get as much development as the Pequeninos or the buggers. No, no, but no, and that's where that's what's so tantalizing about the scene that I talked about mm-hmm. because finally you're getting to the source of all of that. It's like, know. no, we don't need to know that. Moving on. Never mind. <laughs> right. There's an undercurrent. There's an undercurrent of mystery there because you because you you look at this world and you get the sense you you kind of have this understanding that at one point this world was just a, a very different place, mm-hmm. and something happened, just cataclysmic. Something happened and just changed forever this planet, you know. And uh, obviously that becomes just a huge center point of everything that goes on um, in Speaker for the Dead, uh, and then the later books. So yeah, yeah. If uh, yeah, for everyone who hasn't read the uh, the Ender's Game series, it's such a good look at deep, deep, deep world building. I yes, and Ender's Game I think is still the best of them, probably followed by Speaker for the Dead about Xenocide and, and Children of the Mind because it gets so trippy. I feel like he loses his story in the trippiness just a little bit. He goes he, he, he goes a little too far, but I was I was down for it the entire time. I was like, yeah, I know we're getting in deep and we've lost our way, but this is still so much fun. I read every page and I, I enjoyed it, but I had the same feeling. I felt a little adrift at times with books three and four. And again, I'm sort of armchair quarterbacking, you know, really a modern grandmaster of science fiction. Yeah. But I think when you read the reviews on Amazon, I think there is a consensus amongst fans of science fiction that the third and fourth books, which, as I recall, he originally intended to be one book and it just got so out of hand that he had to split it. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he, uh, he kind of, you know, he. some people felt like he kind of lost his way a little bit, that it just got a little bit too strange. I will tell you, without spoiling anything, I do feel like he really, when he went back and did the Bean books, I really felt like he found his way back. I really felt like he started to, he found that form that he had had in the Ender series. And so as you get into the Bean books, I think you'll find them to be, they're very good. And what's really interesting is to see when you see where they go it's uh it's there's a lot there's a there's a lot there and a lot of potential repercussions because you know there there is out there this sense that he's going to write a book at some point he hasn't done it yet or he hasn't published it yet it's going to unite the ender and bean books together huh. and it'll be really interesting to see how he does that you're making me excited again i just started uh ender shadow last night yeah. i was procrastinating on a business statistic <laughs> a test that i needed to be studying for and i was just i got into it i'm so excited to get back in i got like four weeks to to get myself settled before finals hits because <laughs> i don't need to be reading anything when that happens but yeah love card love his stuff so great great example of wonderful world building but edge of edge of oblivion when's it coming out when are we getting it comes out april it's uh it's april 15th uh 2016 so nice coming um, right up it's coming right up it's uh it's that's obviously i i still remember wasn't that long ago it seems like that uh i was talking with the publisher and was offered a contract and here we now i mean we really are i mean i mean we're on the edge of something i mean it's it's just crazy and i'm i'm you know, now I'm at that point where I'm setting up a launch party and I'm doing all these things and, you know, I'm, people are talking about, will you sign my book, which I have to tell you is just a very strange experience. <laughs> um, you know, we, we go, I, again, this is maybe, is, I tell people, I said, 
you got to understand. I said, you know, you, you go through your whole life and you, the only thing you use your signature for is to write a check, you know, <laughs> sign a contract. You know, nobody ever just says, hey, sign your name for the fun of it. So, I mean, all these things, all these things are starting to happen and they're all sort of coming together. And, and it's 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 just a really it's a really fun time. And meanwhile, I'm still writing. I mean, I, I, I submitted my second book to Enclave back uh, back in March, just last month, and they're giving it the first look over there. And I am, uh, right before you and I started talking today, I was doing some work. I just finished the first draft of book three. Woo-hoo. So I actually know how it all ends. And the first book hasn't even come out yet. <laughs> this got to be a nice feeling to have that duck in the, that duck in the row. It's got to be. It's a real sense of accomplishment. Yes. For yeah, sure. and it it's also good for me because it helps me to to well as I write these short stories too. I think it helps me to kind of have a focus. This is where I'm going. Um, one thing I'm not worried about. I I know one author who I really respect, but there's an author I respect, and uh, she really struggled. She wrote I think she wrote her ending like five times. Mm-hmm. Um, just of her of her third book, just like I you know I I don't know what to do, you know just a real struggle and. And I get that. Um, I, I was probably fortunate that I kind of had an idea of where I was going. So I, I, I mean, I've got other decisions I have to weigh, but I've been spared the torture of trying to <laughs> figure out how it's going to, because I know that. Mm-hmm. For sure. Now, hey, I don't don't mean to put you on the spot or anything, but would you want to give away a book to a, to a listener on the show? You could do like an ebook. That, I will be happy to give away a physical copy of the book. Ooh, I will physical give away a copy. Sign. I'll give away a signed physical copy of the book. Oh, you blessed human. Um, All you have to do, you figure out who it's going to be. Okay. You tell me. And uh, once the, once the book actually comes to press and I should have my copies before too long, uh, I will personally ship it out to somebody. Okay. Well, this episode will be coming out. uh, Your book will be coming out. Like, I think it's five days. The 15th is like five days after this episode premieres. So there won't be a long wait at all. Um, how about how about we have everyone go and sign up for your newsletter on your website, okay. and that can be what what gets them entered in, and we can just choose one of the people who did that. Okay. All right. So what I will do, I will look at uh, everybody who signs up, and uh, over say the next, we'll say the next seven days. For the next seven days after this podcast debuts, um, anybody who signed up for my mailing list over those next seven days, I will draw one of those names at random, and I will send them a free signed copy of the book. Awesome. Joshua, that is that is awesome. Thank you very much. Where are you at on the social medias? You got a Facebook? I do. You can find me on you can find me on Facebook. Um, it's Joshua A. Johnston. Um, it's actually Facebook.com slash Joshua A. Johnston, one word. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at J Allen Johnston. Uh, you can find my website, which is actually a repository for anywhere else you can find me, which is joshuaajohnston.com, one word. Uh, and I'm also on Goodreads as well. You can track me down there. It's at Goodreads slash Joshua A. Johnston. So lots of places you can get in touch with me. Absolutely. Oh, we love Goodreads around here. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, the Goodreads. Well, hey, we are out of time. Joshua, thank you so much for being on the show. This was great talking with you. It's been a blast, man. All right. Everyone else, April 15th, Edge of Oblivion. It is out there, and it's available for pre-order on Amazon right now. So sign up, sign up to get your free copy, and we'll make it a thing. Joshua, you have a great day. You too. You're listening to The Very Serious Writing Show. Yeah! <laughs> 
Bomb shakalaka. Bomb shakalaka. Hey, go pick up a copy of Joshua Johnson's Edge of Oblivion. Sign up for the giveaway or pick it up on the Amazons. It should be out pretty quick. It's, it's out this week, so look into it because it is most assuredly going to be worth your time. Thanks again to Joshua Johnson for being in studio. Woo woo, he's first timer. First timer getting published. That's just cool. It's, it's, it's really cool to me to see a guy like him who has a career, who's just written for fun up until this point, embracing it and just going for it and getting a deal with a publishing company. It's, it's so cool. It's so cool. And I'm glad to see it. If you want to follow him, he has the things that he mentioned earlier in the interview. Also, I've got Facebook, I've got Twitter, I've got Goodreads. The Twitter's at Monkey Strudel. I'm Daniel Thompson on the Facebook and on the Goodreads, probably. I mean, I assume that's why I am on the Goodreads. You can get this podcast on the SoundClouds and the iTunes, whichever you prefer. And, well, yeah, I think that about does it for today. Hey, thanks again so much for listening in today. Let me know who you want to hear on the Very Serious Writing Show. Send me names, and I'll get them on. Also, I need someone to send me in some poetry, because I haven't been able to do, like, a celebrity poetry reading segment lately, and that's because I don't have any poetry from y'all. So send me in some of that, and I'll, like, do... I'll do my special... I'll do my special... Uh, what's his name? Uh, ah, Jimmy Stewart! I'll do my Jimmy Stewart impression. Send me in some poetry. I'll read it with Jimmy Stewart's voice. It'll be great. You all have a great Monday. I'll catch you later. <laughs>